are listening to 94.1 KPFA and 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, 97.5 K248BR in Santa Cruz and online at kpfa.org. The time is 3.30. Stay tuned next for cover to cover, open book or frame to frame. to cover open book, or as I like to say, frame to frame. My name is Raina Cowan, and for the next half hour, we're going to be speaking about film. You know, there's certain trends in film that really kind of shock me, and then I get quite engaged with. And one of them has been the superhero thing, which I really kind of avoided. And I thought, there is something here that's more than I would have thought before. And I was really interested in thinking about it, having some insight about it. So I decided to invite somebody who is an expert on superheroes, something that probably a lot of kids wish they were when they were growing up. They're an expert on superheroes, but in a different way. Ramsey Fawaz is an assistant professor of English at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And he is the author of a new book entitled The New Mutants, Superheroes and the Radical Imagination of American Comics. Welcome to KPFA. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure. Why don't we start with Wonder Woman? Because since that was my inroad in, there's something very interesting about both the history of Wonder Woman and then how it winds up appearing in film. So maybe you could tell us a little bit of where she started to where she is now. The cultural history of Wonder Woman has now become of widely known for a couple of reasons. One is because of J- a historian Jill Lepore's book uh, about William Moulton Marston, um, the man who invented the character of Wonder Woman. And another is just because queer histories of comics are kind of emerging more and more as the, um, the medium is circulating among many different populations. Many people now know that Marston was a Harvard-trained psychologist uh, or psychoanalyst who um, had very elaborate and what seemed like crazy theories about uh, the need for men to submit psychically and sexually to women in order to improve kind of the social and emotional life of planet Earth. And um, he kind of famously lived in a three-person relationship um, with two women. They raised family together and they, uh, from all records, had a, had a BDSM relationship. So Wonder Woman is this interesting figure that emerges out of kind of that psychological dynamic. And the early years of Wonder Woman were very much fantasies about a woman who um, both submits to other women, but is also submitted to by men. The bondage imagery uh, runs throughout the entire series. There's a wonderful book by Noah Berlatsky now um, that is called that is about Wonder Woman and its and its histor- historical roots in bondage. So the character is very queer in many ways. Emerges out of this really anti-patriarchal, um, anti-sexist feminist psychological imaginary and this is this gets captured again of course in the 70s by uh, radical feminists she becomes an emblem of second wave feminism um and people like gloria steinem reprint some of the original issues from the 40s so there's that history and i think that that's that's very key to the character so if we think about that somehow when she's getting recreated for 
this 2017 uh-huh. year. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's like a totally different thing. How does she, how is she envisioned and how is it different from how she had been seen before? I think that's a great question. A number of scholars like um, Jack Halberstam have lamented the fact that her reinvention in the cinematic universe has lost all of its queer history. Like we don't see her as part of that history of bondage, etc. I think what's happening with the movie is quite, it's actually quite simple and basic, which is that we have a genre that, in the cinematic universe at least, has been totally dominated by men, to a, which was also historically the case in comics, but n- much less so. Comics by the 60s and 70s were introducing a slew of women characters and uh, characters of much greater diversity than had previously been presented. So I think part of what's happening now is simply that we have a genre that's become to overtake American and global cinema that has become so overdetermined, so, I mean, boring. So the the superhero genre of film now is kind of rote. We all know what it's going to offer us. That the simple insertion of a, a powerful woman character into the center of a superhero film just changes what she, what what counts as a superhero and what she looks like. I think part of what's really powerful about Wonder Woman was that they imagined her, and this is where they really did borrow from her original history, as an emblem of peace against war. That 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 she is um, that she is an icon of love, uh, and that love for her counters war and violence. That I think is the core element that they retain from the original. Um, uh, the original character, and you see that played out in in the film. Well, she's also kind of a foil to culture. Like she goes at one moment, she goes into this department store and <laughs> tries on clothes, yeah. and it, uh, it's like these are not clothes that a woman warrior can wear, mm-hmm. or anybody can really move in. And so she's uh, she becomes sort of the representation of some aspect of the confinement that most women have been living by. Oh, absolutely. I think um, because she comes from this all-woman paradise island, she has almost what we would perceive of now as a kind of naive view of where she assumes that women are powerful, are warriors, have an equal footing in society. She doesn't she doesn't even have a conception of gendered inequality. That's not even something that's part of her psyche or her socialization. So exactly as you point out, part of what's amazing about the figure is that she gets to embody what it would look like for someone who doesn't have any of our forms of gendered socialization encountering our world and encountering patriarchy. And that encounter for her is absurd, right? Like part of what happens to her throughout the movie is that she's constantly articulating or expressing a a sense of the absurdity of gendered oppression. As you pointed out, she does not understand how women's clothing could ever be functional for them in our world. She doesn't understand why men are duplicitous. She doesn't understand why women are not allowed into certain spaces. And what she expresses is not sadness or grief over it. She expresses um, shock, amusement, and embarrassment for humanity. And there's something really powerful about that affect um, because it's so different than the... um, than the affects that we associate with traditional male superheroes. 
figures like Batman, Superman, etc., they are enamored of the laws of our world. Even though they're vigilantes, they want to uphold the social order as it is. And she doesn't understand our social order. It makes no sense to her. Um, and in fact, part of what I find fascinating about the movie is that she has such a visceral disgust for injustice as it is played out in our um, in our geopolitical order. And um, I think that that's something we need at this moment. We need to see um, a superheroic figure who is so turned off by, you know, patriarchy, violence, global war, etc. I think there's something really compelling about that. So I don't know if this is even up your alley, but I was so surprised that at the film, I went to see it in a regular theater with, you know, that was packed with people. And at the end, everybody clapped and not just the women, but the men oh, too. I experienced that as well. I definitely saw that. Um, I think that people are hungry to see this genre do something else. I'm usually the last person to say that if you make a woman a director of a movie or if you make an African-American a director of a movie, that that necessarily means the movie is going to be more progressive or more transformative. There is nothing to suggest that there is a direct correlation between our identities and our politics. Um, and, and as my colleague Jennifer Nash would say, you know, we're, we're, we're all steeped in the same political fiction. So it doesn't mean that just because of your identity, you're going to escape that. But I do think that the film industry, particularly superhero films, are so male-dominated, um, so saturated by masculine imagery, ways of life, ways of thinking, that in, in a case like this, and I think this will be true of Black Panther too, to put an intelligent woman as its director necessarily transformed what could be told in the genre. And that's just because of the conditions of cinema. Um, and, um, and, and and it's kind of being dominated by men. So in that sense, um, I think that she is so compelling to so many different kinds of audiences simply because she doesn't re-perform the status quo. She provides so many different ways of feeling and thinking about the superhero that I think people were overwhelmed by it and surprised by it in really interesting ways. So it makes sense to me that men would have found it compelling. We might also say uh, less generously that the movie does ultimately, the movie is also about war and it is. it also gives something to a certain kind of male audience that there is incredible amounts of action and violence, et cetera. And so it's also pleasurable in that way. Yeah. So, you know, the way that most films are structured is that the main character changes through the course of the film. Now, we know at the beginning yeah. of this film, she I don't know whether she's a curator at a French yeah, museum. She's the Louvre. Yeah, she's yeah, exactly, exactly. She's like an archivist or something. Yeah, or yeah. So you think, okay, like a preservationist. Right. So how did she go from so is that like yeah. where she's winding up? But do you see that her character is changing or is it somehow, I don't know, there's this kind of fantasy as, yeah. as us watching her wanting, like she almost buys in at certain ways mm. to the story we want to hear yeah, and then yeah, something yeah. else happens. Here's what I think. I mean, I wrote about this for the LA Review of Books who very kindly invited me to write a, a like a long form review of the movie. I think one way to see the movie is that it is, I call it a kind of the left-wing Bildungsroman or coming of age story of the superhero genre. What we have in Diana Prince in Wonder Woman is this unbelievably naive, um, 
and yet incredibly ethical, morally driven character who starts by wanting to save the world. That's literally the first line of the movie. We hear her in voiceover while we see an image of planet Earth saying, I used to want to save the world. And the arc of the movie is her discovering that her moral purity doesn't work in a world that is incredibly messy, where even good people can be duplicitous, where, you know, normal human beings make horrific decisions that violate the lives, ethics, and um, well-being of other people. She begins the story really fundamentally not believing or understanding that human beings could ever make decisions that willfully destroy the lives of others. She's convinced that Ares, the god of war, imbues them with evil and that if he can be eliminated that people will just make good decisions and by the end of the movie she realizes that this is not true that human beings make you know bad decisions all the time that they are morally complex and this is the transformation that occurs she realizes that if she wants to be of the world and not a god above it she has to be ordinary at some level herself that she has to actually be among ordinary people and accept that people are complicated. And I think that that is her transformation. That's what's so compelling about her. And we could say, I'm just making this up right now, that it makes a lot of sense that she becomes a preserver of the past, that she wants to be able to pull out those you know, items of art, of history that um, recognize the achievements of humans that are good. You know, it makes sense to me that she's at this beautiful museum at the end, that she's trying to preserve these objects that actually refer to human goodness. Uh, we're speaking here with Ramsey Fawaz, who's an assistant professor of English at University of Wisconsin-Madison and the author of The New Mutants, Superheroes, and the Radical Imagination of American Comics. I'm Rana Cowan, and we're talking about film, and right now we're talking about Wonder Woman. But you raised this point that I think is really interesting, which is that that in order for her to succeed, she has to become human. Yeah. And I think this is a dilemma with superheroes, yeah. this re relationship between when are you human and when are you superhuman? Yes, yes, absolutely. I write about this quite a bit in my book, which is that the superhero... Superheroes do lots of different kinds of cultural work, of course. But one of the things that they do is they put into question exactly what you just pointed out. Um, where, where, where is that space in which um, a, a figure like a superhero can be both exceptional and yet also of humanity? And so superheroes are complicated because they're supposed to represent the people, their job. If you go back to the classic superheroes of the 1930s, Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, Green Lantern, they are invested in ordinary people. Superman is famously called, um, you know, a super new dealer uh, by certain scholars. He wanted to support the ordinary working man against boss, like uh, corrupt bosses and, and the, the machinery of corporate capital. And yet to present him as above humanity separates him from them. So one of the things I write about is that superheroes... Um, toe the line between extreme exceptionality and power and extreme vulnerability. They are figures who are also constantly, their bodies are being intervened upon by science and technology and genetic manipulation. They, uh, they undergo incredible violence by fighting for ordinary people. So in an odd way, superheroes are also deeply vulnerable characters and the, the figure of the superhero meditates extensively 
on that movement between power and vulnerability. Um, which we see played out in democracy itself. Democracy is about the incredible power of people collectively working together, but also about the incredible vulnerability of individuals when they are shorn of that collective uh, life. So I think um, what's so powerful about Wonder Woman, the movie, is that um, even though she's not quite, she's not very physically vulnerable in the movie, we always know that she's going to win out, that she's going to survive. Um, she's incredibly psychically vulnerable to human beings and to their world. And that vulnerability actually leads her to give up um, living on Paradise Island. She embraces that openness to the world. Right. She That she's giving up something. And at the same time, it seems like these superheroes, I mean, horrible things often, I mean, for her, she lived in an amazing yeah, yeah, paradise, yeah, right? right? Yeah, in a utopia, in a feminist utopia. In a feminist utopia, right. That, like, I could have watched the movie just being that, right? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's like the most pleasurable... Everybody will say that the most pleasurable part of the movie is the first 30 minutes. It's the first time that a superhero movie just gives those of us on the left our fantasy of a kind of feminist, multiracial, utopian um, democracy. Like, even though there's a queen, she rules democratically. She takes in other people's ideas. Uh, the women influence one another. It is this incredibly pleasurable fantasy, that first 30 minutes. Right. And this is sort of in contrast to so many of the superheroes' lives where they've been abandoned, they've been yeah. sent from, yes. like, yeah. one planet to another, yeah. they've been infused with radiation by yeah. mistake. So it starts with more torture. Yes. Um, I think Wonder Woman is distinct in that sense because of her lineage as being a god. Thor is like this in the Marvel universe. Um, and I think that her arrival in the world of man, as it's put in the movie and in the, in, and in the comic series, um, is the beginning of her vulnerability. Whereas other superheroes, their origin starts with losing something, being, like you said, being irradiated, having their body made vulnerable to the world. She goes through a process of being, becoming vulnerable to um, human uh, weakness and um, lapses in ethics and morality. Yeah. So it, you in your book, you have this concept, flexibility, which yeah. I thought was yeah. such a great idea. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I mean, I think um, part of what I try to say in the book is that there has been a long history of reading or interpreting superheroes as these very flat, rigid figures that represent mass, mainly white, jingoistic fantasies of hyper-masculinity. And I just always intuitively felt that this was fundamentally wrong because superheroes, the stories themselves are almost always about superhuman bodies being made vulnerable to outside forces. And I felt that that story that was always told about superheroes and their rigidness and their hypermasculinity didn't capture that element of it. In the 1960s and after, I talk extensively in the book about the way in which the American superhero was reinvented as a genetic and species outcast. We get the introduction of superheroes who are mutants, who are genetically altered freaks, um, and, and we, we see this in things like the X-Men, the Fantastic Four, among others. These superheroes became the most popular icons of this genre in the United States. And they were all unbelievably vulnerable. They were vulnerable to xenophobia. They were excluded from the limits of humanity. They were often railed against by so-called normal humans. And so their vulnerability was center stage, 
even as they had special powers. Uh, their powers made them outcasts. I'm really interested in how that reinvention of the figure of the superhero meant that these characters were not simply rigid, rigidly powerful people. They were always in flux. Their bodies were always changing and evolving. Mutant superheroes like the X-Men were always learning more about what their powers could do, how their bodies were evolving over time. And so this plays out not only in superpowers, but in other aspects of superheroes' identities. Their genders, their bodily morphology, their racial identities, all are in flux over time. So if you take like the Fantastic Four, you have a character like Mr. Fantastic, who seems like an ordinary, straight, you know, brilliant, successful white guy whose body becomes flexible so that he's literally, his gender sometimes is not even identifiable because he stretches himself to a point where he no longer looks human. He'll become like a, a knot or a snarl or a ball, right? And so I found it really interesting that post-World War II superhero comic books are enamored of the idea of the body in flux. And I argue kind of writ large that we have something to learn from those comic books in our moment today where, where we have a massive gender and sexual revolution arguing for greater, greater understanding of gender as fluid and flexible and mobile. Superhero comic books were thinking about that in the 60s. I mean, so were other art forms. It's not, but we have something to learn from the figure from that era, the 60s and 70s, uh, because comic book creators were in love with the idea that superheroes could represent the fluxing of the body. So I do, I call it in the book flexibility, which, and I use ability because I, um, as kind of the, um, the suffix there, because I want to think about fluxing as a capacity that superheroes modeled to readers of that era. Well, another thing that I learned from your book, which I thought was really quite extraordinary, is that I had no idea that HUAC and the whole committee yeah. in terms of, like, you know, there was a way that with films, there was these standards that were made in terms of yeah. how women and men could interact. But it turned out that the same thing was happening with the comic comics. books. Yeah, I mean, in the 1950s, comics were probably the most villainized media form uh, of the era. Uh, you know, people who, who were in support of McCarthyism and people who led the House and American Acts Committee, they were being pressured by countless sources like Catholic decency groups, psychiatrists, conservative teachers and principals to um, address the problem of juvenile delinquency. So there's a deep desire to police young people and their values and their interests in order to keep them in line with Cold War ideology. And since comics were consumed so widely by youth, I mean, comics sold at a level in the 40s and 50s that we that is unheard of now. Even as popular as comics would become in the 60s and 70s, they would never be sold in as many numbers in the millions that they did in the 40s and 50s. So they were so widely circulated that they became linked in the popular imagination to the idea of juvenile delinquency. So in 1953-54, um, HUAC holds a very famous hearing, national hearing in, in, in the Senate, on juvenile delinquency. And while they were addressing many issues related to juvenile delinquency, they focused on comics and they brought in many people from the comic book industry to testify about the content of comics. And they essentially put these people on the spot to force them to admit that comics have violent content. And they used their words against them 
to villainize comics. The irony is that legally, the 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 government, the Senate knew that they could not, under the First Amendment, censor comics. But to to basically put at ease the fears of Catholic decency groups and teachers and psychiatrists, they berated the industry publicly so badly that they basically forced the industry to produce its own standards, um, kind of like the Hayes Code, as you said, that was, that became called the Comics Code Authority. So the nature of comics changed dramatically in the mid-50s because the comic book industry began to self-censor. And in many ways, superheroes resurged in popularity in the 50s and 60s because they appeared to the public eye to be like all-American, just like baseball and apple pie. But it was at that point that comic book creators were able to play with the character in new ways. Wow. I see. That's so interesting. We're speaking with Ramsey Fawaz, assistant professor of English at University of Wisconsin-Madison and the author of The New Mutants, Superheroes and the Radical Imagination of American Comics. So if we think about this, so that, that there was a way that creating something that seemed on the surface to be all-American was really a way to create an underground world where things are getting communicated, but Absolutely. in a direct way. Absolutely. It's it's a way of working under the radar. So, um, you know, speaking of film, you know, the, the brilliant film scholar from Berkeley, uh, Carol Clover, famously argued in her book, Men, Women, and Chainsaws, Gender in the Modern Horror Film, that horror cinema of the 60s, 70s, and 80s was thought of as such drivel, that it was just thought of by the public as such trash cinema, that the people who were creating it, like Wes Craven, were able to do extraordinary things with gender. They were able to represent women as empowered um, figures who fought against dysfunctional male psycho killers, etc. Um, and she says that the genre was only able to do this because it was seen as not worthy of much attention. Superheroes were already assumed to be such normative figures of American nationalism, jingoism, masculinity, that nobody presumed that they would be bad for children, right? And so, um, Whereas crime and horror comic books very much appeared on the surface to be promoting juvenile delinquency. So one of the things I argue in my book is that ironically, the demand for the self-censorship of the comic book industry allowed the industry, as bad as that was, and as much as it, it quashed incredible creative and artistic uh, endeavors that might have transformed the industry forever, it did allow for a return to this iconic figure, the American superhero, that also allowed uh, creators to reinvent the figure completely to represent the interests of rebels, misfits, minorities, of all stripes. And I think that that's quite an extraordinary thing that, that happens. It is. Now, I, you know, I work with children a lot, and so that there's a way where, yeah. <laughs> I don't know, I just have to get this in that a lot of kids decide they sort of combine, I think, Harry Potter with superheroes, uh -huh. so they go to super school yeah, or something. Yeah. But there's somehow this idea that these are skills that you can learn. But it's, so but it's funny what they're interested in learning, which is really the powers, not, yeah, yeah, yeah. not the vulnerability yeah. or not the idea of saving others, but rather of... Uh, being self-recognized. So yeah. I just think that there's something about almost the narcissism of our culture that yes. plays out in this. I actually think that's absolutely right because I think 
Look, you can do lots of different things with different kinds of figures and icons and characters. The superhero is not universally conservative or universally radical. It's a character that can do lots of different things. Told in a certain way, superheroes are absolutely narcissistic and about power and control. Told in another way, they are all like I said, like we were just talking about. They are all about vulnerability and connectivity. When you think about it. The ethical purview or the ethical locus of a superhero could technically be limitless. Superheroes can serve、uh, the ethical good of any creature in the universe, and so, from one sense, it can be understood as a as a figure of incredible mag- like being magnanimous and benevolent and open to a wide, complicated world. It just depends on how you tell the story. That occasionally, superhero movies do that. It's interesting because Harry Potter is this deeply ethical story about the forces of conservatism. And if kids are reading that story and are coming out of it saying, "I just want powers for myself," then I actually think the real mistake, as you said, is about how people are talking to them about what they've read, <laughs> because the story itself is not about that. So there really is a question about what, how are their social contexts giving them、um, a logic that's allowing them to overlook. The really deep story about community and bonding and friendship that is at the core of Harry Potter. That's so beautiful.、Uh, I have to take your class on that. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, we've been speaking with Ramsey Fawaz, assistant professor of English at University of Wisconsin Madison. He's the author of *The New Mutants: Superheroes and the Radical Imagination of American Comics*. It's been a delight. Listening to ninety four point one KPFA Berkeley and online at kpfa dot org. Hi, I'm Daniel Borgstrom, candidate for KPFA's local station board, running as part of the Slate Rescue Pacifica. When people ask me why I joined the Marine Corps, I tell them because where I grew up along Puget Sound, there was no KPFA or Pacifica affiliate. There was just corporate media and Cold War propaganda. Today, the National Pacifica Network has five stations and about two hundred and fifty affiliates. One of these in my old hometown, where they now play hard rock radio and flashpoints. 